All right, good evening. For time's sake, we are going to go ahead and get started. Let me pray, and then I will uh, briefly set up tonight, and then we're going to jump right in because there is a, about a 0% chance we're going to get through all these questions, but we're going to do our best. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thanks for the chance to gather tonight. Thanks uh, that these brothers and sisters have uh, fought to show up this evening, and I uh, pray as we continue our uh, conversation uh, around de-churching, de deconstruction, uh, that you would uh, encourage us in the good news of the gospel, that we would be a people who endure faithfully, holding fast to the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints, and that we would be a compelling witness in the midst of the brokenness of this world. Uh, so I pray that our time now of questions, responses would be helpful, would be edifying, would be building up for the body of Christ here at the King's Church, and uh, just really pray that this would be all for your glory and honor of this evening. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, we're doing something new. This is like a little living. This is how we have all of our elder meetings. We come out here on the stage, <laughs> set up the couch. Uh, no, I wanted a chance tonight to, uh, since this is such a big topic, to uh, get some other voices uh, kind of speaking into this. And so my goal tonight is really just to moderate. You all have heard more than enough from me. And uh, you guys have submitted some really thoughtful questions. And uh, kind of just want to walk through, uh, we've, we've kind of broken it down to 11 of them. And again, there's five of us, not all of us are going to talk at every answer, but it's going to be a tall order to get through that. Uh, really tonight, we're starting conversations. We're certainly not finishing any of them. One of our core values is faithfully pursuing meaningful conversations here, and so uh, hopefully we'll model a little bit of what that looks like around these topics, and it'll be an encouragement to you. If we didn't get to your question you asked, I'm sorry in advance. Um, we're all here available to chat, though, afterward, and any complaints and questions we've agreed are going to go to Pat. So that's Pat Kappenman at gmail.com, send all of your thoughts, questions, anything else that you need there. Uh, and we'll be ex he'll be excited to uh, follow up with that. Um, so what we've done, we've got 11 questions. We're gonna try to get through them as quickly as we can. They should be on the screen. There are no notes for tonight that are printed. We've got the first two nights here if you need them. And uh, we are going to jump in and get started. So question number one, of the six casually de-churching factors mentioned in the first Equip Night, which would each of you say is the biggest threat to our church today? And it'd be helpful if I had uh, that list, which I do right here, just as a reminder. Um, so as a reminder, those casually de-churching factors we talked about uh, included uh, secularization and the lifestyle that comes along with that, autonomous individualism, the collapse of institutions, internet and social media, changing demographics, and we talked about the sexual revolution as well being a, a, a contributing factor to that. So uh, the question does say, what does each of you, so we can each try to briefly answer that. Uh, which one would we say is the biggest threat to our church body? Pastor Andrew, you wanna start us off? Sure, yeah, uh, I'll start us off. Uh, I think, I think um, yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, one of one of the things that jumps off just in conversations we've been having around this topic is is uh, a lot of our minds race to one or the other, but one that our mind doesn't race to quickly is individualism. Uh, individualism is the air we breathe, the water we swim in, and um, the fact that it's almost assumed. You know, we don't we don't think of ourselves. We don't wake up in the morning and think I'm an individual. Because it's just the air you breathe. Um, one of the messages that you hear, which uh, some of the other guys might, might think that tech is tech is one, but it's really the soil in which all of these other things are growing out of, from my perspective. And especially here at the King's Church, 
we may be aware of a lot of these other things that are more external and visible, but the one that's closer to home, I think, is is individual. Yeah, and that's actually kind of a toxic water. It's not as though the water of individualism is a safe water to swim in from a gospel perspective. So that, that's really the point. Um, I would add probably the one we're least familiar with as a culture is the social media one right now. It's the newest phenomenon. I mean, it's only been around less than 20 years. And the jury is still out as to whether social media and the iPhone Yeah, I think with that danger, um, what social media and the internet provide through individualism is the ability to create echo chambers and to create little temples to ourselves that we can craft and consume. Um, all that we want, curate information that we deem worthy for our own attention, and it places ourselves at the center. So we wake up in the morning and we're like, hey, let's, let's see what we're angry about today. And you open Twitter or X or put on a facade and sculpt that, uh, that image of what you want on Instagram or get in internet fights on Facebook. It, it is very divisive in that way. And then it just disembodies you from the, the world that you're in, where God has placed you, and then you move yourself digitally to see problems that are not local, that are not outside your window, not in your neighborhood, not in our context. And so then we can long to solve problems that don't exist uh, in real life. That's good. I'm going to add to the social media internet conversation. I think it is in ways to, although technological developments are not new, um, but when we're talking about de-churching and when we're talking about uh, the idea of deconstruction, just the, the multiplier and the, the magnifying effect that technology has in that reality, right? So we're hyper-individualized uh, culture, Western culture, um, and then you're adding new technologies on top of that um, that we don't really know how they're how they're affecting us, I think it pulls us out of actually what we would argue is an embodied community uh, that is faithfully seeking meaningful conversations, right, pursuing beauty in the ordinary uh, and fighting to show up. So it's pushing uh, against some of those things, and that's why maybe we intentionally push back against some of that. Uh, but I, I do think there's a, a unique a uniqueness uh, to the individualism and then the technology there. That's good. I don't know if y'all, can y'all hear, I know the mics go in and out. Can we hear? Okay. Maybe so. I'm just glad it's not just me. There's been accusations thrown over the years that I don't, like, go outside barefoot enough and that I'm too static. So, honestly, this is just therapeutic for me for y'all to have some struggles with it, too. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'd add anything to that. I think that the, uh, Pastor Andrew said it well, the, the individualism is just, we don't even realize how much that impacts us, and it just makes the whole conversation around church complicated. And so uh, that's one that I think is, it operates under the hood and really expresses itself in all sorts of other ways. So I would just kind of echo that. All right, we're making decent time there. So number two, uh, how do you reach a casualty 
of deconstruction back to the truth of the gospel. So if you weren't here for that first week, we kind of broke this de-churching, deconstruction phenomenon in two ways. There's the casually uh, de-churched who just kind of slip away because of any of those factors we just talked about. And then there's the casualties, those who have experienced harm in the name of the gospel or in a local church, legitimate sinful harm has been done to them and they're having a hard time reconciling their faith because of that. So for somebody in that second boat, a casualty of deconstruction, uh, how would you reach them back to the truth of the gospel? Yeah. I don't want to sound trite with my answer, but I would reach them back with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that it actually stands as enough to embrace the harm that was done to anybody and provide them with hope and help for their future. And it's true. So if what they were hurt in was a church that really wasn't offering the truth of the gospel. It was disguised somehow. I think I would want to start with looking for an opportunity to um, honestly share the truth of the gospel with the Lord Jesus. I mean, I think Joseph and um, there told that they had dramatic things happen to them in the course of their lives. But yeah, I think with that, if we're pointing them to the gospel, not that you're saying we need to convince them of, of anything necessarily, but before the gospel can convince, it needs to captivate. And so in order to do that, how have we been captivated by the gospel? And that's through Jesus uh, incarnating and dwelling among us, dwelling among the hurting. And so I would say to end those conversations, if it's something that has happened in the past or is, you know, however recent, um, I think our care for that individual is to be with them, to hurt with them, to validate uh, their dignity and acknowledging, yes, what you went through is bad. This was sin on their part, but then this is how the gospel redeems that. And in doing that, you're embodying it to share proximity with the suffering. And so you're modeling Jesus so that when you present Jesus, they have something tangible to hold on to. In the same way that they've been hurt by someone of the faith, they can be healed through the same proximity care um, to lead them into gospel safety and time. That's excellent. That's excellent. And I would even go a step farther. And if I had the responsibility or power to address the crime that was committed against that person, I would want to bring that to light for the appropriate authorities so that person knew whatever trauma happened to you is not their fault. Yeah. It was a crime on this person's Yeah, the, the only other thing I would add to that, um, I can very faintly read question number two on that screen right there. It says how. Um, I think we're a people that are obsessed with technique. Technique, pragmatics, how can I, how to's. Um, I know my Google search history is the best way to fill in the blank. 
Um, and I think that before we even get to the how, we need to stop and we need to pray. Pray for the individual, pray for the circumstance. Um, the, whole, the whole process of, of thinking that we are uh, reaching someone in that way, apart from prayer, dependent prayer, um, I think is, is a little bit um, short-sighted and arrogant. So I think prayer needs to saturate uh, our approach. Yeah, I think uh, we're, we're hurt in community, but we're, we're healed in community as well. And so it, it takes time and relationship for somebody who's experienced something that sh they should not have experienced at the hand of a church to process that, have the safety to do that, which without relational capital, I don't know how, how you get there. So uh, meaningful relationships has to be part of the, the picture on that. Yeah, that's good. All right, number three. In what practical ways, this is a light question, uh, can we equip our children to handle some of the big life topics thrust at them at a young age with love while remaining firm in the truth? Practical ways we can equip our children to handle these big topics thrust at them at a young age with love while remaining firm in the truth? Since Pastor Rob has the most children on stage, we'll start with you. <laughs> yeah, great question. Uh, I did not submit this one. Um, <laughs> But I think it is a fantastic question. And so uh, there are a number of things here. One, um, I want to first address the parents and kind of um, take it foundationally like Andrew just did with the previous question. Like, this is a spiritual battle. And so prayer is the number one thing. Like, don't overlook that. Don't assume that it's less than. It is the most powerful tool because we don't you know, battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And so there's a spiritual component with that. Um, tangibly for parents, uh, I know that this answer could potentially depend on age and stage, but uh, allow me to give you three helps here. Um, finding beauty in the ordinary, because uh, you're going to have an idealized view of what this looks like. Table time, quiet times with your kids, all of these things. So, um, they're never going to live up to that idolized view. So find beauty in those moments. Fight to show up when you're tired, when um, there's a million tasks to do and they ask the questions or you seize that, mo there's a moment to seize, seize it. That's what Deuteronomy 6 tells us, like when we rise up, when we lie down, when we sit together, when we walk along the way, like all of these things, like redeem those moments and then faithfully pursue meaningful conversations. Um, I oftentimes fail at these three, but I try to remind myself that in all of these three things, it's opportunities to be the lead repenter in our homes, to model this is what life of repentance looks like. Because at the end of the day, I don't want my kids to reflect my image. I want them to reflect the image of Christ. And so I'm going to point them to him as best ways I can. And I know that they're going to need good foundational truths. So catechisms, uh, the past couple weeks, we've been doing that together elementary-wise. Um, if you have a uh, kid in Kingdom Kids, I sent out communication last week, two weeks ago, on some helpful tools there. New City Catechism, um, Tiny Theologians, there's lots of resources available. Um, I would say start small. Start just having those conversations um, slowly. Look for wins and point those to God's faithfulness. And um, when you fail, because you will, um, let them know that you need the forgiveness of Christ just as much as they do. Sorry, I just always have, oh, this one's almost dead. Is this on? Rob's no, is. No, 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 no. 
Yeah. It'll cut You're us in off. Patch here, we'll be, we'll be done. Uh, Robert Murray McShane said of pastors that the greatest gift a pastor can give his congregation is holiness. And I think um, I would replace pastor with parent. The greatest gift you can give your kids is holiness. Um, thinking back on my dad, my dad's life, my dad was a man who loved Jesus, but he was weird. He was odd. Uh, you know, Super Bowl's gone, and he is on the roof of the church blowing off leaves. Why are you doing that, Dad? Uh, when he was wronged, he did not return evil. Um, I saw him do that. So his speech was not only, uh, he, did, he did love and word only, but indeed. So it wasn't all the truth of the gospel, but that's crucial. It was the goodness and the beauty of the gospel through his life that I didn't really appreciate or understand until much, much later in my life. So don't overlook the, the gift that holiness is to your kids and pursue it. Yeah, Rob has the most kids. I probably have the oldest kids. I've got two kids who are 40. Okay. And, uh, and, um, and then I've got several grandchildren. And I just had one today with a 16-year-old. And we recently welcomed the new one. So the whole spectrum of what we're meaning by the word child. Think about the next stage. We have another. We have another headset, Chris. We could do for Pat. I had one job was to set the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one job. <laughs> I, I just just two quick kind of practical things, um, which may not be like crazy, but um, one is everything's on the table, right? Um, so are we setting a culture in our homes that whatever it is, whatever stage, whatever we can have that that conversation at an appropriate level, but we can talk. So, so again, we're doing, we're doing life where we're, we're seeking truth, 
together, right? And, and pursuing Jesus uh, together. Uh, so I, those are just two kind of quick things. Yeah, I mean, what, what, a, what a gift for, like, our kids to have this room to help with that. Um, and that's just being a meaningful part of the church and building meaningful relationships uh, creates uh, that opportunity for your kids. And I think, uh, find, I mean, giving a reason for the hope that's in us is a biblical call. So, yes, we should pursue answers to our kids' questions. Uh, but quite frankly, they're going to ask questions that you and I didn't ask because the world they live in is just different than the world that we live in. And that doesn't mean we don't pursue answers, we do. But think about your experience growing up into maturity. Um, I remember less the specific questions I had and far more the people that I talked to. And so let's be people that our kids can trust to bring those questions to where they're not shamed for that but can uh, engage in that meaningful conversation. Um, Who knows what five, 10 years from now kids are gonna be facing as we do that, but we can commit together as the household of faith, to have many big brothers, big sisters, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers. Uh, that is the gift of the church that the world cannot offer. And so let's lean into that, not away from that. Yeah, amen. Cool. All right, zooming along. Number four. Uh, how do we weigh church responsibility versus God's sovereignty? when it comes to someone who has deconstructed uh, their faith here, especially with someone who seems extremely hardened to the gospel and the church, and then these were kind of related questions we asked, so we're just gonna combine them. Uh, do you think that Hebrews 6, four through six, is relevant to deconstruction? Have you ever seen anyone come back after they have uh, deconstructed? Uh, Hebrews, uh, the, the question there, the context in Hebrews 6 has uh, a lot of passages about those who seemingly were a part of the community and who have fallen away, and uh, you, can, you can see the context there on that. Maybe one of these guys will read it, but um, yeah, how do, we, how do we weigh church responsibility versus God's sovereignty? Um, how, does this, how does Hebrews maybe speak into that, uh, that conversation? I think that's really a good connection with Hebrews because it does imply that this concept of deconstruction and as it's in our day and age, has been going on from the beginning. So, to say I believe something is fundamentally different from believing something. Okay? Say that again. Say I believe something is fundamentally different than believing something. So, to walk away from something I say I believe is not that big a deal. Still have an open door to truth, but in the Hebrew situation, to walk away from the truth is a risky thing. So do so with caution. Um, that doesn't necessarily get to the question of where's the church's responsibility and where's God's sovereignty, but it does kind of build that connection between this phenomenon is not a new thing in our age. It's that's been going on from the very beginning. In fact, I think even in your first night, you predicted it through the first parable Jesus ever told. Mm-hmm. The gospel is going to go out, and three quarters of the people who hear it, theoretically, are not going to be changed. So half of them will say they believe it. When do you guys want to solve man's church's responsibility, God's sovereignty for us all the way? Yeah, let's solve it. 
Let's call it. Uh, yes, the church has responsibility. I, I think that you have to be able to hold in tension uh, the reality that um, the church is still full of sinners, and sinners will uh, are, are responsible for their sin. I think uh, Pat kind of tongue in cheek, but I'm going to take the tongue in cheek and get to y'all. Um, he said that it's perfectly okay that the grace of Jesus can meet a person behind prison bars, which is powerful. Um, speaking of, we were talking about church abuse specifically and, and, and those types of things, but there is responsibility to be had. There are real natural consequences for actions, and yet God is sovereign. Um, so we have to be able to hold the two in intention, for sure. Yeah, that's good. All consequences are God's Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, when the church is at fault, um, the church also should be able to say that that's the case. Um, we don't just wipe that away and act like it did not happen. So we are people of the truth, so we communicate the truth. Um, but we at least theologically, as pastors, believe that salvation does belong to the Lord. So that doesn't mean that we just give up on somebody who has deconstructed or turned away, especially if we had a personal relationship with them, they're a family member. Um, Paul seemed to affirm, yeah, salvation belongs to the Lord, and I want to persuade everyone that I can of the truth and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. And so anytime we start to uh, overemphasize one end of that, uh, that tension, I think we, we run into problems. Um, but that should both give us hope that salvation does belong to the Lord, then even someone who has deconstructed their faith until the day they die and meet Jesus, still has a chance to believe in the gospel, right? And so we want to keep offering them Jesus. We want to offer them the gospel. We want to speak the truth into situations uh, where maybe it's been muddied in the past. And we want to keep doing our last point from last week. We just want to keep pointing them to Jesus. Uh, he is the one that saves. And so we keep offering that. Cool. Um, have you guys ever seen anyone come back after they have deconstructed? That was a question. Yeah, this is an interesting question. So, if a person has been going to a church that preaches something other than the gospel, and they de-church from that church, is that a good thing? It seems as though it would be. Would they have been counted as a de-churched person in this current sociological moment by this study, yes, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, that they walked away from a church that didn't preach Christ and the gospel clearly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The phenomenon we're going through is not necessarily a bad thing, it's just too soon to know whether Deconstructing and de-churching is, oh my gosh, we should really panic about this. Could actually be the best thing that happens for that person who quote deconstructs from a church like that. It may actually open the door to the gospel mm -hmm. Which is different than a false teacher who rises up amongst us and begins promoting some kind of erroneous version of the gospel. Mm -hmm. You deal differently with that person than you might with the other person. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I, I think that I think also um, there there are those who uh, have deconstructed who are enemies of the household of faith, who who have uh, deconstructed in not in the healthy way of like okay seeking truth, but really wanting to burn the thing to the ground. 
Um, so I do think that there is also like folks who are, are deconstructing with a faith-seeking understanding uh, perspective, like though there there's a great chance that when they when they find truth, uh, you know, they will return. For those who are kind of with the more like philosophical deconstruction of like Jacques Derrida, who really wanted to dis in, de destroy language, words, structures, institutions, he wanted to see it all crumble. That wave of deconstruction is is going to only lead to death, and and that type of uh, posture, you know, we, we should pray, we should pray, but there there is definitely a great danger there, and that wave of the deconstruction movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. Chaos is not an improvement on a bad system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's good. All right, number five. Uh, what weight can we attribute to de-churching from confusing essential orthodox doctrine to tertiary culture war issues? Uh, do we have a collective answer to that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I think for time's sake, see, it's a good, it's a good question, and, and I think last week tried to really identify that's, that's a massive part of the problem. When you make something besides the gospel the main thing, it cannot bear the weight of that, and it will absolutely contribute, contribute to this. Uh, maybe the related question with it, how much of a role does our American church structure play in de-churching? Can we imagine a better, more compelling vision for the gathering of believers? Welcome to the King's Church. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be my answer. Yes, of course we can imagine a better way. And I think at least at the level of gentlemen on this platform, that's what the King's Church is about. Imagine a better way where Jesus is given the duty he's born of. <laughs> yeah, if, if, the, if the church gathering is just a pit stop on the way to the lobby to talk about brunch, we missed it. Um, and if it's a social club where we're, we're gathering, but it's really just a, a um, appetizer for a um, political conversation in the back, we missed it. Um, so I think that, that inside of the question, there, there were a couple of different things if I'm remembering the question. Um, the theater, we we talk about it regularly. We are not we are not performers. We are not trying to put on a show. We are not trying to do a song and dance, bait and switch with the gospel. That is horrendous. Um, and then on the country club side, we are not an affinity group. Uh, I mean, I, we we say a lot of times like in city groups we have Jesus in common. We don't have we don't maybe have much else, but we've got Jesus. Therefore, we have everything. Leave everything in common. So that's that's the point. Just add just a little comment. Um, the this this kind of highlights some of the beauty of the diversity of the church, uh, which I, I think could be a wonderful wonderful thing for us just to think about. Right, that this is that the church is global, and there there are other uh, faithful men and women throughout the ages and across the world um, that that do things slightly differently. And so just opening our minds to, to at least imagine that. Um, and then actually uh, have conversations with, with people who aren't like us, but who, who are faithful, um, Christ-exalting followers. Uh, I, I, I think it's just an opportunity for us. Um, but uh, we, we also, as soon as we open our mouths, right, as Americans, 
we are participating in what I think this question is hinting at, right? We are enculturated people. Um, and so we can't just burn that to the ground either. Um, but what is redeemable and what can we learn from our, from our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world uh, throughout time, I think is an opportunity for it. Yeah, um, Andrew and I talked a little bit about this uh, last week or something. I threw some Latin at him. Simper Reformanda, Reformanda, however classically you want to pronounce that, uh, but meaning always reforming. You don't think soteriologically here, this is the church. There's no qualifier here. So the church, the tenets of the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to save sinners, of which that's what we all are. And we start to lose that identity when we start putting qualifiers on qualifiers, the American church the West, these types of things. And when you have um, leaders who can sit and ask the questions, why are we doing this? We need to reform that to what is a church? Biblically, what does this mean? And if it doesn't fit that, then we get rid of that thing. And so I, I think that in the care and launching the King's Church, that we don't do everything perfectly, we always ask the question, does this fit with the mission and vision of what we're going to do? Because we want to see the gospel reproduced and churches reproduced, not the King's Church reproduced or this church reproduced. Um, it's local expressions contextualized by the gospel. And in these safe places um, that are built on the gospel are opportunities to grow in gospel fluency, which means you have to engage in conversation. This means asking questions of one another. I don't think any of us shy away from that. We want to be spaces where we can do that and welcome that. Yeah, Eugene Peterson says that the average American pastor is expected to be an entrepreneur with a good business plan. And I think if the American church is structured, if, if there's anything that we've realized has been lacking in the American context, our own expression of it, it's that we've created a consumer business product and called it the church. And we have no interest in that. It uh, doesn't mean we have to think contextually about the world we live in and how we bring the gospel to bear on that, but if the relationship between church and church member, which you don't even have members in that context, right, is just here's goods and services we offer and here you go, hop in if you want, of course that's contributing to the great de-churching that we're seeing, but maybe to Pat's point, let's let that go and let's invite people into something better. And that's New Testament, family members in the household of faith, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, members together, uh, that's far more compelling than uh, creative business plans. Yeah. Yeah, certainly we're putting on a show. That's right. All right, keep moving. Number six, how do we approach personal doubts and questions raised by engaging with individuals and other sources, such as social media, who either have deconstructed or are in the process? How do we approach personal doubts and questions raised maybe within ourselves, I think is what the question is asking, by engaging with others or with other sources who have deconstructed or are in the process? I just, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, a couple of things. This maybe doesn't answer the question. Maybe it does, halfway. I'll get us halfway there. Y'all take it the rest of the way. I think uh, be, know yourself. Do not assume you're stronger than you are. Uh, he who thinks he stands, beware lest you fall. That's probably the old King James that my mom taught me that in, but bear with me. Don't, 
don't don't just assume that you're going to be around influences without being influenced. Um, what I've seen more often than not with folks that are uh, either in the process of de-churching, deconstructing, is they think they got a stronger pivot foot than they do, and they end up dragging that sucker with them as they say that they're not being influenced. Be be very be very open and on even with people around you. Let them speak into it, um, but. Beware if you think that you're strong enough to withstand um, some of these things. Because there, there are, uh, there's philosophical jargon that will tie your mind in a pretzel and serve you an antibiotic. I'm not kidding. And, and, and it's, that it will just try and, and make everything sound so flowery and good. You, you have to know what conversation you're in and what is happening. There is a spiritual war going for your affections and your loves. Beware if you think you stand unless you fall. I think the world would be a different place on many different levels at many different times of history if the individuals who listened to liars had stopped listening. If Eve and Adam had decided to step on the snake instead of listening to the snake, things would have gone differently. If David would have decided to resist his urge to explore the world on the roof, things would have gone differently. So, coming to the place in our own lives where we value obedience to Christ more than we value the allure, thrill, the intrigue of these plausible possibilities. Um, I think we go a long way towards resolving the doubts we have. On the other side of that, if you're going to spend 10 minutes a day exploring doubts and so forth, spend 30 minutes a day really seriously looking into the scriptures. That could be a really good antiseptic formula for you in this regard. Yeah, I think that that's good. And with that, like, again, we're kind of hitting the same beats each time, but don't do it in isolation, right? So we do this together in that this has always been the model of Jesus. He sends his disciples out in pairs. Paul, when he's going from place to place to learn about culture, to engage with the unbelievers, the de-churching, the deep converts, the people who are worshiping the temples to unknown gods, like there are people there together. He travels with Barnabas, son of encouragement, because I think that he needed him. He needed encouraging in the faith to be able to continue to do the mission. And so we're better together in those times where we can process together with what's going on. When we just, you know, look at that through the lens of social media or or whatever, we're, you know, rooting ourselves there and not taking the gaze at, at scriptures. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to understand. We're, we're meant to do this not by ourselves. So bringing other people alongside that, being honest about your questions, and not assuming that you're the first person in all of history to ever have those questions. Um, yeah. yeah. I would just add to somebody who's been down the 30 or 40 years longer than you is also a really valuable value of reading books. You've got the opportunity to talk to people who have been down the road um, hundreds of years. Um, 
<laughs> Dare I say your free book will do that well. So <laughs> read the book. It's great. Um, yeah, I think last, maybe put a bow on that. Um, yes and amen to all of that. And also at the same time, we don't have to approach this whole conversation from a place of fear. Like the, the gospel is true. That's what we believe. All truth is God's truth. And so, yeah, know, know if you're going to go down a path that's not good for you. Amen. Uh, but at the same time, if you're engaging with another individual, friends, you're, you're genuinely curious about something, like we, we believe we're, we're people of the truth, like capital T truth. And so um, we, we do so taking every thought captive to Christ and, and trusting that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So um, yes to all that. Let's be cautious. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be discerning. Um, but we don't need to be fearful as we think about this, this conversation. Good. Um, okay, I'm going to... Somebody asked a great question about the church in Ephesus, and we just preached about it in the summer, and you should listen to that sermon. We're going to keep moving. Um, number eight, I'm sorry. If that was your question, I have lots of thoughts, and I would love to dialogue with you right afterward. Uh, number eight, how can Christians, we got about nine minutes, how can Christians call out sin without looking like hypocrites? How can Christians call out sin without looking like hypocrites? We'll jump in and just start the conversation. I think we need to be brutally honest about our own fallen nature, uh, right? Uh, can I quote Tupac? Is that okay? Uh, two, two, Tupac I'm in. Said, he said, I'm not a killer, but don't push me, right? And so we, we just have to be honest. We have to be honest, and, and, and we, we really are all capable of doing um, horrible, horrible things. Uh, and I think if we realize that and realize our own fallen nature, uh, then um, we, we, can, we can dive into some of these conversations without um, that hypocritical spirit. Either way, talk about Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, we must come to the thing which was first of all delivered, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So now I've just leveled the playing field between me and you, us and them, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which is another way of saying what Brandon just said. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. If I find myself spending a lot of time talking to other people about their sins, I ought not to be surprised if I have little opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. If I spend a lot of time talking to people about Jesus, I may discover get an open door to speak with them frankly about their sin. I don't think it goes in the same So I'm not sure what the question that I meant by calling out sin, but maybe that's not the right objective for us. We haven't been placed here to call out sin. We've been placed here to magnify Jesus. In the process, we're going to have to address the reality of sin because Christ died for our sins. But yeah, and I think I think the um, the daily um, that's what Luther began in five pieces with the, the daily uh, need all of the Christian life is repentance and faith. If you are not um, daily, every other daily, Lord willing, once a weekly, um, repenting of sin, you're going to be shocked when somebody brings this in to you. Hoodwinked, bamboozled. Uh, 
But if, if you do see the plank in your eye, you will be in a much better spot to, with great grace and patience, come alongside a brother or sister or a stranger uh, to remove the speck in theirs. Um, but if you don't see your sin as more significant, and you should, because you're inside your own head and you know yourself, uh, Lord willing, uh, then I think hypocrisy is inevitable. The other thing, I, I think hypocrisy is wearing a mask. It's asking, acting like something that you're not. Right? And so we are all, we all struggle with sin. Uh, I think living with integrity is, is owning it when we fail. We need to be able to own it when we fail. Um, and when we don't do that, we need to be able to own the fact that we didn't own it when we fail. And, and do that over and over again. And keep hypocrisy at bay by not wearing a mask. And being a people who make that possible by doing this together. Which is another theme kind of in the night, I think. Yeah, I've been waiting to work in truth, goodness, and beauty, so here we go. Um, when the the nature, if this is your question, I, I don't mean to misrepresent you, but I want to just take a step back here. To call out sin runs the risk of overlooking our own sin. And so that's being concerned with either truth or, or goodness. Like, uh, you know, on the same level, we all want to strive to, to live good lives on the gospel, to... Uh, say true things, and those, those are true, but the beauty of the gospel is that it levels the playing field. Just because I may be a pastor doesn't mean that I am any less of a sinner than any of you in these views. And so what I want to do is I want to show the beauty of the gospel through, through confession, through, through bringing to light, into the light, my shortcomings, my weaknesses, my sins, my propensity to, to go a certain way, to go astray, and then to point to the fact of in Jesus, he's died for all of these things, and the scriptures remind us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, and it'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if that's, if that's the room that we can construct, and that's the room that we can build and live in, then that creates an opportunity for, for that to naturally. So it's less about calling out and more about shining the light down, first on us, and then inviting people through the beauty of the gospel to then confess that on their own. That doesn't make any effect. There's going to be times when we're blinded to sin and we're going to need a brother or sister to call that out. But I think that if we do the former or the latter, Uh, yeah, if you've been around church a lot, um, maybe you'll notice at the King's Church we haven't really used the language of like having an accountability partner. That language can be helpful and good, but in my experience with accountability partners, you just get together and talk about your sin. You never talk about Jesus. And what is the kindness of God in Christ that draws us to repentance? So yes, we communicate the truth and love to each other, but we view our sin under the lens of the gospel. And if we can be people who talk about Jesus, yes, we will need to process our sin, um, but I'm afraid sometimes we get so navel-gazing on our own sin that we miss the beauty of the power comes from the beauty of the gospel that draws us away from that uh, into something better. So, yeah. Are you going to quote Biggie? Are you going to quote Biggie? Because that's the only way this is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry.
Sorry. Sorry. Uh, now I feel bad. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, okay, let me do this. I'm going to... We're, we're almost out of time. Are there, like, we have time for, like, one or two. Are there any questions that you all have that you would dare to raise your hand, ask, you've got us here, um, questions, follow-up to what we just said, anything that you're dying to know that didn't, didn't make it into this, or a follow-up to what was just, just answered? Give you a shot. Go for it. Just say it loud, and we'll repeat it. How do we say it one more time? Yeah. How do we how do we process denominational divisions, things like that? Yeah. That, that's actually a great question, and it goes back to you know a longer history than most of us remember. So this season of dechurching is one like those that happened in times past. Um, so division has always been both a uh, uh, sad thing and a helpful thing. It's been sad in that it's a really painful thing to deal with the tension of, uh, I used to have friends, but now we don't hang out with each other. But I'm more in love with Jesus now. I'm more in step with Jesus because of that division and filtering separated from than it was before. Um, in the early 1900s, the European modernists stole the seminaries that everybody went to school for, went to school to, to become a uh, pastor Yale, Princeton, Harvard. They were stolen by those who had alternate ideas to the gospel. That was an awful thing. But the fundamentalists in that day, reclaimed the truth of the gospel, and there was this groundswell of growth for the authentic gospel. We don't think of fundamentals that way any longer, but that's what they were in the beginning. They were a revitalization of the true gospel. And then when I was a teenager's age, um, it was the Woodstock, Beatles, free love, drug, sex, rock and roll kind of era. And there was another kind of walking away from the church that happened there. But then you had the Jesus culture that rose up in the 70s and thousands of people came to faith, including my mom, which is why I'm here. She was a part of that counter movement to the de-churching that was the Woodstock generation. And now you've got this generation of de-churching going on seen how that will play out. Um, it seems as though Jesus chooses to allow division to be a part of the church's history for those twin reasons. So I'm not sure it's a thing I would take the responsibility to fix, if that makes sense. But that's, that's past. Yeah. I could just add uh, maybe the language of theological triage is, is helpful there. Um, I think uh, we can we can pursue the orthodox faith. Right? What is what is the faith once and once and for all delivered to the saints, um, and then not ask uh, institutions to be something that they're not. 
right? So this is, this is a local expression of the big C church, right? And so um, I think globally you can, you can say capital C church, we're going, we're going to unite around uh, things of first tier issue uh, and then denominationally usually it would be a, a second tier issue and then, uh, yeah, on down the line. But um, does that not mean we can, we can find creative ways, right? Because I think the heart of your question is, is we want unity around Christ as the capital C church, right? That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. And yet still local expressions and denominations exist. So now how do we operate inside of that? And I think there, there are ways that we can link arms together around the things that we do, you know, uh, that we can. I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Yeah, I think denominations are a good and necessary thing because there's legitimate differences about church practice and governance and baptism and all the things. And I know here at the King's Church, we're denominationally confusing, so we've maybe, you know, created a little more home for that. Um, but think of it, let's go back to another question. Uh, one of the failures of the American church, if you are treating people as if it's a consumer and a product, then what are other churches? Competition. And if we can get out of that mindset, especially if everything we just looked at in this series is true and say, okay, how can we collaborate and preach the gospel together? And yes, there's going to be differences on those second, third tier issues. Um, that's, that's the lane we're trying to run in. Uh, and thankfully, others have adopted us who are different denominationally than us to help run in that lane. Um, but rather than viewing other churches as competition, how can we collaborate together to own a geographic area for the gospel? That, that's more, I think, the conversation that's happening, which I'm really encouraged by, and something that we're certainly trying to run after. Yep. All right, time for one more. Anybody else? Last question. If not, I have one for the guys. Seth? Yeah, is there a type of deconstruction that's good? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you think of like a child's development, a child is um, constructing, deconstructing, reconstructing constantly. I mean, I teach my son something one day. Day one, Jack, here is a fact. Day two, why? Day three, okay, I think I understand. Uh, or they've questioned it to the point where I don't really even know what I'm talking about, and we've reconstructed together, right? Uh, so I do think, Seth, that's a great question, uh, because there is a, I would say deconstructing is just a modern word for what Rob is talking about, always reforming. Faith-seeking understanding is what Anselm of Canterbury would say. Um, I'm not going to give you the Latin, I'll leave that to Rob. Uh, but faith-seeking understanding, this is what we do. We're wired as human beings in the image of God with the ability to believe in things and seek understanding based on our faith. It's what we do. It's what we do, and we're constantly doing it. So I would say that uh, deconstruction is, is a good thing with the heart motivated by the gospel to find the truth of the gospel wherever, wherever it's found, right? So great question, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We're a little over on time, so we're going to stop there. Um, we have just, like I said at the beginning, kind of started conversations. Again, our core values faithfully pursuing meaningful conversations, so we trust that this will continue, um, both uh, just informally in our church, but then also in city groups, in other conversation opportunities that we have together. Uh, know that we're available to 
chat about anything, maybe you have some follow-up specifically that you'd like to ask about, please uh, let us know. I do want to give you some next steps. This is our last equip night, uh, so that means uh, rolling into September, we are relaunching city groups, and so if you're not in a city group, go ahead and uh, scan the QR code. Now I sound like a product. Uh, this is a... This is a means for you to get into a family, okay? So uh, view it that way. Um, you can scan that or you can stop in the connection room. The map and the guides have been updated with all of our fall offerings for city groups. We have some new groups that are launching. Um, so please, if you're a part of the King's Church, uh, that means you're a part of a city group. Uh, that's where we, uh, all of our core values converge just by the ordinary meeting week by week, sharing a meal, talking about Jesus, uh, trying to strip away all the other things that may not be of first importance and look at Jesus and fight to keep him the main thing uh, in our community. So if you're uh, not in a city group or need to uh, maybe switch nights for city groups, things like that, please uh, hop on that. We're gonna start that not next week, but the week after. And then I wanna give one final plug as well. Uh, one of the things that we've seen in this de-churching conversation is that there's just been a lack of gospel formation, a lack of real thick faith, a discipleship that uh, really takes things seriously. And our classes are an opportunity to really develop that kind of thick faith uh, through learning how to study the Bible and exploring uh, doctrinal uh, topics as well. So um, our Acts class starts next week, so if you're not yet in a class, I want to encourage you to sign up to hop in one of those. And then as a little preview, uh, the second half of our classes is going to be a doctrine class all on anthropology. Uh, which sounds very high level and theoretical, but here's what that means. Doctrine of mankind, we're gonna look theologically, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What are the implications of that? And then the second half, where we're gonna bounce back and forth, is gonna be all ethical questions. Uh, as you might imagine, there's a lot of those about technology and AI, about gender and marriage and sexuality. Uh, those are the types of things we're gonna be exploring in doctrine class, so stay tuned for that in the second half of our uh, fall semester. So stop by uh, the Connection Room if you need to get in a city group. Uh, register for classes, those start up next week. And I'm gonna ask uh, Pastor Pat to pray for us as we wrap up. Thank you, Father, for engaging us in conversation, for giving us the word in written form that can inform us about reality as it really is, and then by sending your son Jesus, who confirmed truth and reality of who you really are and how you love us and what you have in mind for us. I pray that you can help the King's Church to be a place that makes a big deal about Jesus and the gospel. Um, and that by that much we draw people in church to be constructed, seeking to yourself through him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, thanks for participating. Hope it was helpful. Love you guys. See you Sunday.